to uh, Hebrew, Hebrews, excuse me, chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. That's Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. And because we're such a small group today, I would like to ask you uh, to answer two questions. My first question is, what is the most heinous or egregious sin that a man can commit? In other words, what is the sin that will ultimately damn a man's soul to eternity in hell? Is it the sin of murder, adultery, idolatry, lying, covetousness, or any of the Ten Commandments? What is the most horrible sin that can be committed towards God? Please answer aloud. Okay, Pam says unbelief. Anyone else? Well, she's absolutely right. All other sins have a remedy, but there is absolutely no remedy for unbelief. And understand that unbelief can be committed by saint and sinner alike. Now I want you to think about this second question. Don't be too quick to answer. Would you ever deliberately call God a liar to his face? Give you two or three seconds. Would you ever call God a liar to? I see some heads nodding uh, in the negative. Is there a general consensus on that, that we would not call God a liar? Well, I've got some bad news for you. As we examine our text today, we'll find that not only is it possible for us to call God a liar, but that we have all, at some point in our Christian experience, called him a liar. We've done that through sin, disobedience, and I'm going to explain myself, doubt and unbelief. And we find ourselves crying out to the Lord in repentance, saying, Lord, I believe, but what? Help my unbelief. Now this prayer is an honest prayer. This prayer uh, is an admission of our own imperfection in faith. And you should know that every time you sin or I sin, we tacitly declare, Lord, you don't tell the truth. You will not honor your word. In essence, we say, Lord, I don't believe that there is a consequence for sin. I don't believe that you will honor the threats of punishment that you have spoken in your word. I don't believe that your word is true. But you need to know that God must honor his word. He cannot deny or contradict himself. Failing to follow through with the promises of blessings that he has in his word or his threats as it relates to punishment renders him inoperative. It renders him uh, totally uh, untrustworthy and useless. And then the question should be, why should we believe in him at all? So the focus this morning is not to discourage you, and I'm going to say some things that uh, may not be easily swallowed, but the focus is on unbelief and the fact that we need to stay away from unbelief at all costs. I've entitled this, this uh, sermon, Four Characteristics of an Unbelieving Heart. Keeping in mind again that not only do unbelievers disbelieve God, but likewise sometimes we, even as his children, disbelieve him. 
the fourfold outline here is an unbelieving heart is an evil heart, the unbelieving heart is a departing heart, an unbelieving heart is a hardened heart, and an unbelieving heart is a restless heart. And I'd like to give this disclaimer before we get started uh, so that I am not committing plagiarism uh, and not using someone else's material. But after studying out this, this, this subject, I found that I could not improve upon this particular outline, so I did borrow the outline from someone. The context is that the author of the book of Hebrews is unknown. And any ventured guess would be mere speculation. What we do know is that this book was written to three distinct groups of Jews. And we also know that the writer had several warnings in mind. This book has six stern warnings. Each time, uh, I should say, each of them uh, warns against apostasy, simply meaning the defection from God and from the truthfulness of his word. These six uh, warnings are, don't drift from what you have heard. Don't disbelieve the voice of God. And as I've told you, you're hearing the voice of God right now. Don't degenerate from the basic principles of the oracles of God. Don't despise the knowledge of the truth. Don't devalue the grace of God and don't depart from him who is speaking. And this is basically telling us not to deny God, nor to reject his word. But the three groups that this writer is talking to, first of all, the believing Jews who had heard the words of the gospel, after which they united the knowledge of these truths with faith, and they were truly saved. The second group were believing Jews who heard the truth and had intellectual assent. In other words, they had head knowledge, yet they did not commit their lives to Jesus Christ. That's a dangerous place to be in, to have knowledge of the Lord and not respond to his truth. They hung in the balances of decision. The admonition is here. It says that procrastination or waiting is the same as unbelief. To disbelieve God and his word is to sin against the only remedy for sin. In Hebrews 10 and 26 it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And there was a third group. Unbelieving Jews who had been exposed to the truths of the gospel but rejected it or rejected them to their own eternal destruction. And again, I want you to understand that all, although the first group of Jews believed, they were very immature, and they were tethered still to the Old Testament. They were tethered to holding on to the Old Covenant, and at times they, they even uh, uh, would want to turn and go back in that direction. You also need to know that every individual that is an audience of my voice this morning falls into one of these groups. There's no neutrality. You either have heard the gospel, you believe it, and you've exercised faith in Jesus Christ and you know him. Or you've repeatedly heard the gospel, believe that it's true, but you're still waiting and asking God for more proof. 
And then, of course, the third group. You've heard the truth, but you don't want anything to do with it because you love darkness more than you do light. Listen to these sobering words from Jonathan Edwards, perhaps one of the greatest theologians uh, in America, in his book. And I, I, I would suggest that you read it, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How many of you have heard of it? How many of you have read it? You should read it. It says this, and he's speaking of the precarious nature of those who procrastinate and can to remain, remain halt in their decision to commit themselves to God. It says, uncovered men walk over the pit of hell on rotten covering. And there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they will not bear the weight and these places are not seen. They walk around in life they walk around in life and they think that they're healthy because maybe they work out at the gym. They think that they're secure because they've got money in the bank. But they fail to realize that they're walking on very thin ice as they go over the chasm of hell. As a matter of fact, the picture of this weak covering is God's patience. God is holding all men up with his patience. But for some men, God's hand is doing this. And eventually he pulls it away. And that man cascades into hell with others who chose to reject, reject God. We all have to understand that God's grace does have a shelf life. How many of you would go into your kitchen this afternoon and say you wanted a cup of soup? And it said on that can, eat before 1975. How many of you would still eat it? Of course you wouldn't. God's grace, although it is free, it does have an expiration date. It knows exactly where that date ends for them. So the time to operate and act is now. Proverbs 20 and 2 says, The fear of a king is as the roaring of a lion whose proof provokes him to anger, sins against his own soul. So for a man to believe, cognitively, not spiritually, but he believes in his head, not in his heart, he is actually sinning against his own soul. And this is exactly what the ancient Israelites did as they provoked the Lord in the rebellion. The rebellion referring to the time, their time in the wilderness. A trip that was only supposed to take them from this side of the Jordan into the promised land in 11 days. And instead it took them 40 years. It's also important for us to know that we are all accountable to God for what group we find ourselves in. It would behoove those who profess Christ as Lord and Savior to make your calling and your election sure. And for those who are procrastinating, realize that each moment you wait, you are hardened by your own inactivity. And you will be held accountable for sinning against knowledge. Because to whom much is given, much is required. I fear for those who have long life. We all know of people who live 70, 80, and 90 years and yet have not 
made a decision to serve the Lord. Not only are they found in a precarious situation in that their heart has developed a considerable amount of callous, but one day they will give an account to God and spend an eternity in hell being punished for all of that time that they had an opportunity to be right with him. We must understand that waiting means searing the conscience or cauterizing the conscience to the point to where you are judicially hardened by God. Most people fail to realize when they think of Pharaoh, they say, oh, well, God hardened his heart. Well, that's true, but Pharaoh hardened his heart first. God allows human beings to harden their hearts, and then he hardens their heart. In 2 Corinthians 6 and 2, it says, Behold, now is the accepted or favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You have no other time. You can boast of no other time. Your next breath is in the hand of the Lord, and your next breath may be your last. But if you're one who has lived for a long period of time, and yet not made that decision. Scripture speaks to you in 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 and 12, and you don't have to turn there. It says, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What am I saying? They had the truth, but because they squandered the truth, in essence, they called God a liar. God turns around and takes away their capacity to even hear truth, believe truth, understand truth. So now everything they hear, that's a lie, they believe. If someone comes to you and say, I'm of the Baha'i faith, trust in this. They'll say, I receive it. As a matter of fact, they may have that patchwork theology to where they're grabbing from all over the place like Oprah. And they believe it. And yet, they are totally closed out from the love of God. It would be a shame to live 80 or 90 years in this life, stay on the earth, and get to a point to where you couldn't hear the truth if it bit you. This is sobering. It's sobering to me. But the church needs to hear it. Each moment of your passive rejection and failure to unite your faith with God's Word causes another layer of callous to accumulate on the heart. 2 Peter 3 and 19 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But everyone's not going to come to repentance. And for those who have been exposed to the truth of the gospel, yet rejected outright, you stand on the very precipice of a miserable eternity. It is the job of all teachers, all preachers, all Christians to sound the clarion call that you must receive Christ today. And understand that there is no such thing as a post-mortem second chance. In other words, there are no second chances when you die. Hebrews 9 and 27 says, it is appointed on demand to die. And after this, the judgment. Hebrews 2 and 3, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Okay, so we're at our text today. Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. 
And it says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Okay, and it's very necessary for us to uh, acknowledge that word, therefore. The therefore harkens back to what had been stated in uh, the six, five, prior six verses. Verses 1 through 6 states, uh, or exhorted the Jews to consider Jesus Christ the apostle and high priest of their confession. And it simply means, Jesus being an apostle, simply means that he was sent by God. These first six verses convey the theme of the entire book, of the book of Hebrews. The superiority of Christ over all things. In other words, better than. You could put that in your Bible. Better than. Jesus is better than anything. Specifically as it related to the Jews, Better than the prophets and the angels and Moses and the Sabbath and the Old Covenant. All of these things would have been revered by the Jews. And so the writer crushes all of their tradition by saying, yeah, that was good, but Jesus is better than. Jesus is warning the Jews about the sin of unbelief. The writer quotes David in Psalm 95, 7 through 11. And a sober warning is given several times in two chapters, chapter 3 and 4. Today, if you hear my voice, harden not your heart. And of course, Hebrews 3, 7 through 11 is an interpretation of Psalm 95. And this uh, device is referred to as the analogy of Scripture. In other words, you interpret Scripture with the Scriptures. In verse Verses 3 through 19, the writer of Hebrews uses the example of ancient Israelites' experience in the wilderness to reason with the Jews of his day regarding their unbelief toward God. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10 and 6, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire to do the evil that they did. By application, we as believers today and all subsequent generations are encouraged not to disbelieve God or doubt the Lord. Because when you do that, guess what you do? You side with Satan. What did Satan say to Eve in the garden? Hath God what? Hath God said? And what he was doing is basically accusing God, saying, 
He's not telling the truth. But guess what? Anytime we doubt God or disbelieve God, we're saying the same thing that Satan did. In this passage, we see that the ancient Israelites had enough faith to be taken out of Egypt, but they did not have enough faith to take them into the land of promise. As a matter of fact, there was one writer who once said, it took the Lord one day to get Egypt, get Israel out of Egypt, but it took him 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And in reality, he still didn't get it all out. And we could say the same thing for us today. It took him one moment to regenerate us, to save us, and to deliver us from sin. But it's taking him a lifetime to get the sinful world out of us. <clears throat> As a result of this, the Jews, they forfeited their earthly rest. They had absolutely no excuse whatsoever not to believe God. For 40 years they saw the miracles of God. And yet they were saying, Lord, just one more time. Prove it to me one more time. And how many of us do the exact same thing when we're in trials and difficulty and trouble? Say, Lord, I believe in you, but could you show me one more thing, Lord, so that I can really believe you? We should not think that way. We have no excuse because we have the risen Christ who has come in the flesh. We have the resident Holy Spirit residing within us. And we have the voice of God sitting in our laps right now. There's no reason for us not to believe the Lord. But these Jews' behavior was betrayed by the fact that they were telling God to prove himself over and over again. In essence, they, they again were saying, you're going to have to do something else, Lord. These people actually desired to go back into, uh, into Egypt and to have the flesh pots of Egypt and slavery over being set free and being with God. The Lord said, not only have you tempted me one time, but according to Numbers 14, 21 and 22, you have tempted me ten times. And guess what? They provoked him unto wrath. And the Greek word for provoked here is talking about being aggravated, agitated, nauseated. God was saying, I've had it up to here with you. And as a result of that, he said, because of this, you will not experience your... It didn't say they weren't going to heaven, but it says that they would not experience an earthly rest. The same thing can apply to us. We are born again, and we're on our way to glory. But we can live lives in such a way to where we have no peace in this life. And it goes against everything that God is trying to teach us. But let, and again, lest we be too hard on the Israelites, we have to acknowledge the fact that we do the same thing. So this is the analogy of the, pas the passage. Egypt is equivalent to the bondage of sin. In the same way that the Lord has delivered Israel from the bondage of Egypt, he has delivered you from the bondage of sin. And because of their unbelief, God never could completely eradicate it. As a matter of fact, he kills off one whole generation over a 40-year period. And then, once they get in the land, they still don't do the right thing. So they don't have rest. They don't have the Canaan rest that they could have. Which brings us to the first in our outline, and we won't be long from this point on, 
An unbelieving heart is an evil heart. Verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. What does an unbelieving heart look like? An unbelieving heart disbelieves and discounts what God says. This is a flagrant attack upon the veracity or the truthfulness of God's person, His work, and His word. The evil heart will inevitably degenerate to a hardened heart. This is where the heart becomes desensitized to the truth. It causes the conscience to become dull in understanding. In the Hebrew, that word dull is where we get the word moron from. So unbelief makes you become a moron. The evil heart is an irrational heart. Israel committed apostasy at Kadesh Barnea. That was right on the border before they crossed over into the promised land. They wanted to exchange their freedom for slavery because they were scared. As a matter of fact, they sent these spies into the land. And in doing so, they disobeyed God. God didn't tell them to send spies into the land. They did that because they did not trust God. And guess what? Only two came back with a good report. Who were they? Say it aloud. Joshua and Caleb. But the other ten, oh, these people are too big for us. They're going to destroy us. They didn't see all of the blessings in the promised land. They had fear, and as a result of that, the Lord punished them four years for every spy. Forty years. Marking time in the desert. The Lord simply said, don't send spies. He said, just go into the land and, and, and conquer who's there. Get them out of there. But I'm with you. You don't have anything to worry about. And he's saying the same thing to you today in your circumstances, whatever they are. Does he mean he's going to deliver you from all of your circumstances? No. But what I am saying is, is you can trust in him and know that he has your best at heart. The bad thing about it is not only did the people sin against God and his word, Moses did. And as a result of that, and I want to read this to you, turn to Deuteronomy 34. We're almost done, believe it or not. And this is going to talk about the death of Moses. And we're going to see here that Moses, because of unbelief, was taken out of the world prematurely. Deuteronomy 34, 4 through 7. says, The Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he, meaning God, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Now here's the part that you need to underline or remember. His eyes were, was undimmed and his vigor unabated. What does this mean in a nutshell? Usually when you get older, your eyesight fails. The Lord is saying, Moses had more time to live. His eyesight was not failing. And his natural vigor 
was not abated. He had enough strength to go on. But because of his disobedience, the Lord says, I'm going to let you look into the land and see what you forfeited in the earth. Not heaven, but the internal, uh, uh, your earthly inheritance, you forfeited because you did not believe in me. And then the Lord took him and buried him. The Lord buried Moses because he didn't want anyone to know where his grave was because they would have worshipped there. So, not only is an unbelieving heart an evil heart, number two on the outline, an unbelieving heart is a departing heart. And departure here is talking about defection. It's a qualitative decision or deliberate decision to say, I don't believe. And you do that habitually. And this is exactly, this exactly characterizes the behavior of the Old, of the Old Testament Jews. They habitually chose not to believe God. In spite of God providing for them time and time again miracles, he provided for them, made a way literally out of no way, water out of a rock, come on, manna from heaven, and yet they couldn't believe in him. An admonition is an evil and departing heart is never satisfied. And if you notice, if you've ever witnessed to some of your unbelieving friends who know better, they always have an excuse. They always have, well, if God was this, if God was so loving, why does he let evil happen on the earth? Any excuse is better than none. They're never satisfied. There was one, I think his name was Bertrand Russell. He was like the arch atheist of the world. He made the statement once, I don't believe in God, but if I die and I meet him, I will tell him, Lord, you didn't give me enough information. That's a person who knew better, but because of dissatisfaction and the choice not to believe, his soul was lost. I'll tell you another thing. We needn't waste our time getting into intellectual arguments with people. They want to argue and come up with all of these fancy uh, ideas pertaining to life and death and all of these things. The bottom line, all of that is a smokescreen. They're just not willing to believe because they love darkness more than light. So not only is an unbelieving heart an evil and departing heart, but an unbelieving heart is a hardened heart. Verse 13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. First of all, we need to determine what is meant by the word today. There are three possibilities. First of all, the 24-hour solar period of a day. The next would be an undetermined amount time of time called a day age. But this is the most appropriate one. The immediate moment a person hears the gospel and understands it. If you hear the preaching of the gospel today and you understand it, today is your day, bro. Today is your day. You don't necessarily have tomorrow, even though many people brag about tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. 
and you may draw your last breath tonight. What does it mean to have a hardened heart? In the Greek, it's the word sclerosis. We all understand that. Arterial sclerosis, or the hardening of the arteries, is something that is imperceptible and happens over a period of time. Same way with a hardened heart. Here God blesses you with a heart that can receive, but you reject Him, you reject Him, you reject Him, you reject Him, and you finally get to a point to where you don't hear God's voice at all. God is no longer speaking. And you don't want to get to a place to where you are on uh, no speaking terms with God. And then at that point, it doesn't matter how much you pray. You can pray until the cows come home. Only God knows. But if you reject his truth after hearing it, and you soberly understand it, and you will also give an account for it in eternity, you knew better. Sin is a deceiver. It will certainly deceive a hardened heart. What does Jeremiah 17 and 9 say? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And of course, you hear the world all the time. I I hear it all the time on TV. Just follow your dreams. Follow your heart. Well, I'll tell you what, if you follow your heart, you're going to go straight to hell. Because it will deceive you every time. It wants no part of God. And finally, we've learned that an unbelieving heart is an evil heart, a departing heart, and a hardened heart. And then the saddest part of all, an unbelieving heart is a restless heart. Reading in verses 18 and 19, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who, dis, who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Understand this, that restlessness speaks of the absence of peace. Dave talked about it for weeks. The peace of God and the peace with God. The peace of God, I'm sorry, the peace with God, meaning that God is no longer at war with you. The sad part about it is there are people who are jogging today. They're doing everything that their little hearts want to do. And they don't realize that there is a conflict between them and God. That they are not cognizant of the war that exists between them and God. So they have no peace with God. As a matter of fact, Psalm 7 and 11 says, God is a just God, and he is angry with the wicked every day. What does this mean? God is angry with the man who has had an opportunity to hear this truth every day and reject it and understand that this anger is cumulative. Each day, hardness piles upon the heart of that man But each day, in God's mind, anger is there. And one day, he's going to release grace. The grace period will be over. He'll release that gate, and a torrent of God's eternal wrath will fall upon those who rejected him. Also understand that not only is there the problem, the, the sinful man is fighting war on three battlefronts. He is at war with God, he is at war with his fellow man, and he's at war even with himself. There is no peace, says the Lord, unto the wicked. I don't care 
how much money a person has, and they may have a, it's a, a sweltering day today, and they'll be uh, basking in their swimming pool. But they have no true peace. You understand that they have to do different things, drugs and alcohol and whatever else, to medicate and to sort of try to placate that, that ache that's within them. And they can do absolutely nothing about it because that peace can only come from Jesus Christ. He has no peace in this life and he has no peace to come in the future. There are at least five types of rest mentioned in the Bible. Creation rest, where God ceased from his labors after creating the universe. Canaan rest, that was the earthly rest that Israel was supposed to have, but they didn't enjoy because they didn't believe. The rest of salvation, which we've all entered into. The rest of consecration and sanctification, which means it depends on what type of life you as a believer live to determine whether you're going to have peace in this life. And then, of course, there's the heavenly eternal rest. Rest can only come from Jesus Christ. Matthew 11, and we're on the, on the downswing here. We are truly almost done here. Matthew 11 and 28 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I love these two quotes, and I may have quoted them to you before. The first one is from uh, Blaise Pascal. Pascal. He said this, and you may have heard this in some form or another anyway. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by, the God, by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. If you have true peace today, it is only because of Jesus. Not by anything you possess not by anything you've conjured up in your own mind when you've created your own religion and you've created your own God. And then Augustine answers this just splendidly. He says, Lord, this is a prayer. You have made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. How many of you know that that's true? That rest only comes through God. I know it with all my heart. That true rest only comes through God. So finally, a final warning. Unbelief will only garner the eternal frown and displeasure of God. I don't have the quote here, but this one infidel, this one atheist on his deathbed realized that all was lost. And the fact that he had done some horrible things. He murdered his wife. He made his son become a beggar. He did all of these horrible things. And as he was drawing his last breath, he said, Lord, hell would be a refuge if it would hide me from your frown. So these people that shake their puny little fists in the hands, of, in the face of God every day, I'm bigger than you, God. I get to do what I want. I'm, there's a commercial that makes me sick. They quote uh, Invictus, what uh, Tim LaVey quoted before he was executed. I'm the master of my soul. I'm the captain of my faith. No, you, faith. No, you are not. God owns you, lock, stock, and barrel. I want to say these, this, I want to read this poem, and I'm going to be done. 
Because what's supposed to happen after a sermon is you're supposed to elicit a response. Not to where you're talking back at me, but elicit a response in your heart and give you something to think about for the day. And it's called Five Minutes After I Die. Loved ones will weep o'er my silent face. Dear ones will clasp me in sad embrace. Darkness and shadows will fill the place five minutes after I die. Faces that sorrow I will not see. Voices that murmur will not reach me. Where, oh where, will my spirit be five minutes after I die? Not to repair the good I lack, fixed to the goal of my chosen track. No space to repent, no turning back five minutes after I die. Made it forever with my chosen throng. Long is eternity, oh, so long. Then woe is me if my soul be wrong. Five minutes after I die. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. As Leah comes, I'm going to prepare our hearts to sing one more song.